In Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, we read from Luke's inspired pen, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he had also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Today I want to concentrate on verse 3 of this text, which says again, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible, infallible proofs being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things concerning or pertaining to the kingdom of God. Many infallible proofs. I want us to think about those three very, very crucial words from Luke's inspired pen. If something is infallible, then it's incapable of failing. It cannot fail. It's infallible. It is absolutely certain. And then when we think of the word proof, the word proof suggests, as the dictionary defines it, the evidence or argument that compels the mind to accept an assertion as true. You're compelled to accept it because the proof is there. The evidence is there. Now notice that Jesus did not merely show himself alive to his disciples after his resurrection, but he did so with proofs, but not just with proofs, but with many proofs, but not just with many proofs, but many infallible proofs. And I want us to appreciate fully the strength of that statement by Luke. Many infallible proofs. That statement, that statement is fundamental to a dispute that is going on and will go on until time is no more. A dispute between the believers and the unbelievers. A dispute between the friends of the Bible and the enemies of the Bible. And this statement involves the foundation of the entire revelation of God to man. If this statement is true, from Acts 1 verse 3, then the Bible is true. And it is from God, with all the consequences that follow. And if Jesus showed himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, then obviously he rose from the dead. An imposter could not have raised himself from the dead. God would not have raised an imposter from the dead. And so if Jesus rose from the dead, God raised him from the dead. And he is divine. And if he is divine, then all he ever said is true. And this becomes the foundation of the entire matter of revelation. The issue here is not about opinion. The issue here is not about speculation or some theory, but it's about a person. It's about a person, but not just any person. The most wonderful person who ever lived on this earth. Did this person rise from the dead? Let's first set before our minds 
the two parties that are involved in this issue, the believers and the unbelievers. And let me ask you, what do the unbelievers claim? What do they claim? The answer is nothing. They don't claim anything. In other words, they affirm nothing. They advocate nothing. They defend nothing. They deny Christ. They deny the apostles. They deny the prophets, etc. And they propose in their stead nothing. Absolutely nothing. They have nothing to offer you but fear instead of faith, confusion instead of confidence and conviction, pagan ideas instead of peace with God. That's what the unbeliever offers you. But if we're going to approach the question with intelligence, we need to see what is admitted by everyone, both sides, even, even the unbelievers. What do they admit? Well, they admit that there was such a person as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I know there are a few unbelievers who try to claim that Jesus was a myth, but they are few and far between, and there is absolutely no evidence to support it, and the evidence is overwhelming to any objective thinker that Jesus truly existed as a person. There was a person, Jesus of Nazareth. Also, all will admit that he lived at the time assigned to him in the Bible, that he lived in the country assigned to him in the Bible, that he was nailed to a Roman cross, that he actually died there on that cross. Most will admit that, even the unbelievers. They will even go so far as to admit that the body was given to Joseph of Arimathea, that Joseph laid it in his own new tomb that a great stone was placed at the entrance of the tomb and that an armed guard of Roman soldiers was stationed over it to guard it, that the directions given to those who were posted there were to make it as secure as you can. And that the reason for posting that guard was because the enemies remembered that Jesus said while he lived that he would rise the third day. And so the enemies of Christ feared that his disciples would steal the body and try to tell everyone that he had risen from the dead. That early on the third morning of the third day, or early on the morning of the third day, the body was missing. They will admit that for the most part. That it was no longer in that tomb in which it was placed three days earlier. Now, what do these unbelievers specifically claim happened to the body of Jesus? They say the body was stolen. Who were the witnesses to the theft of the body? They say the witnesses to the theft of Jesus' body were the Roman soldiers, 60 of them. There were 60 of them comprising this Roman guard. And where were these 60 soldiers when the body was stolen? They were all at their post. And what were they doing? Sleeping. They were all asleep. And so if they were asleep, how did they know anyone, let alone the disciples of Jesus, had stolen the body? They could not have known that. And why did they never confront the disciples and compel them to return the body, that would have been a simple matter. 
confront the disciples and demand that they return the body. Why did they not do that? They didn't do it because they didn't believe their own story. And beyond that, what motive could the disciples of Christ, think about it, what motive could the disciples of Christ have had in stealing the body? For what purpose would they have stolen it? So that they could make it alive themselves? Of course not. They couldn't make it alive. In fact, the disciples of Christ, the apostles, did not even understand the resurrection at this point in time and did not believe that Jesus would rise from the dead. And even after the resurrection of Christ, they had the concept of a civil government still in their minds. We alluded to that in Bible class this morning. In Acts 1-7, when they came to Jesus and said, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And that question involved a civil government that they still had in mind. A civil government that would relieve them of Roman oppression. And so they were incomplete in their knowledge even at that point in time. The whole report supposedly of what happened to the body of Jesus by his enemies, the whole report was impossible to believe. Impossible to believe. But now... Notice the other side. How do the friends of Jesus account for the absence of his body from the tomb on the morning of the third day? Well, they claim he rose from the dead. But who are their witnesses? Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection, resurrection chapter as it is so often called, said he was seen alive after his resurrection by Cephas, he was seen by the twelve, as they were called, the apostles who remained. Afterward, he was seen by more than 500 brethren at one time. And then Paul went on to say the greater portion of those 500 were still living when Paul penned these words to the Corinthians. Most of those 500 were still alive. And then after that, he was seen by James, the brother of the Lord. It is believed as the reference there. And then he was seen by all the apostles, and last of all, as one born out of due time or due season, as Paul referred to himself, he was seen by Paul. Saul of Tarsus, who was on that Damascus road on a mission of persecution. He saw him. Well, there are only two grounds. There are only two bases upon which testimony can be made doubtful. One, if it can be shown that the witnesses were mistaken, then, of course, you can do away with that testimony. Secondly, if the honesty of the witnesses can be questioned, then obviously that renders the testimony doubtful. Could these witnesses have been mistaken? No. Clearly the answer is no. He was seen on far too many occasions by too many people for them to have been mistaken. That's not possible. The apostles saw him ascend to heaven, and they heard the angels speak to them on that occasion. The apostles later claimed the Lord had given them power to heal, etc. And some of the witnesses made statements that could have easily been proven false by any number of persons, if indeed they were false. For example, Matthew's account of the miracles of Christ. What about the fact that Jesus supposedly fed thousands of people in broad daylight and fed them miraculously. 
the great earthquake, the darkness at his crucifixion, and on and on and on you could go with Matthew's account of these miracles. How easy it would have been for those who were still alive in that immediate time to have proven false Matthew's claims, if they were indeed false. The apostles claimed to be able to speak in languages they had never learned, to make revelations by inspiration, of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's ask, could these witnesses have been dishonest? They couldn't have been mistaken. Far too many of them saw him. But could they have been dishonest? What would have been their incentive for being dishonest about the resurrection of Christ? Think about that. It's a very important and salient point. What would have been their incentive for telling falsehoods about the resurrection? Think about it. The resurrection story, the resurrection account, if not true, if indeed it was a fanciful falsehood that was made up by the apostles of Christ and others, it was the most unpopular and unwelcome story that any man or set of men could have told at the time in which they lived. You don't make up unpopular stories to tell them to your own hurt. If you're going to make something up, you'd want to make something up that appealed to the populace, wouldn't you? That was very popular and very well accepted. The resurrection story was just the opposite. And think about, think about these men who were the apostles of Christ before he was betrayed, at the time he was betrayed, and taken into custody and ultimately where did they all go on the night of his betrayal? They all fled, timid and cowardly at that time. Now we're to believe that after they had stolen his body, <laughs> knew that he did not rise from the dead, they were cowardly and timid before he was betrayed, but now, knowing that he didn't rise from the dead, knowing that that's a falsehood, they are nonetheless going to stand before crowd after crowd and with great courage and boldness proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead, knowing that it was untrue. How does one account for their persistence in proclaiming the resurrected Christ until their testimony was sealed with their own blood. And tradition says all but John died martyrs' deaths because they preached with conviction the resurrection of Christ. How much sense would that possibly make? And think about Paul, for example. What about him? He had it made. He had it made in the Jewish religion, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He even recounted on one occasion after his, after his conversion, everything that he had and all the benefits that he enjoyed, and yet he said, I counted them all as rubbish, garbage, trash, because of Christ. What happened? What happened? His conversion happened. The late J.W. McGarvey says, Paul is one of the great proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've mentioned this before because of what he saw, 
on that Damascus road, he saw the Christ. Because of what he didn't see, because he was blinded there, miraculously blinded, and then finally because of what he sacrificed after his sight returned and everything that he suffered for the cause of Christ. You read 2 Corinthians 11 where he enumerates what he had been through and still doubt, if you can, that Paul was an honest man. He was. And then notice the first preaching of the apostles. Where was the first preaching of the apostles done? In Jerusalem. It was done in Jerusalem where 50 days earlier it was unanimously agreed that Jesus had died. Fifty days later in that city of Jerusalem, this is where the apostles begin their preaching. Here was the place where the people were better prepared than anywhere on earth to judge the truth of the preaching of these men. The prejudices of the people were against the apostles at this time, as well as popularity and all other worldly interest. Everything was against them on Pentecost Day. Every existing religion was against them when they stood up to preach. And yet they did, and what was the result? Some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel. In a few days, 5,000 had become obedient to the faith. Shortly, the gospel reached Samaria and moved onward from there and onward and onward and onward. Are we to believe that illiterate, timid, uninspired fishermen and others like them did all this on their own strength? Did they do it by preaching a falsehood? And in their mere human strength, perpetuating a falsehood, a falsehood that produced more than any other truth had ever produced since the beginning of time, who can believe it? The restoration preacher Ben Franklin, not Benjamin Franklin, the, one of the founders of the nation, but the preacher Ben Franklin put it this way, quote, to say that the apostles did this in their own strength by preaching a falsehood and one of the silliest falsehoods ever told, too, if it was a falsehood at all, is to say that the most stupendous, grand, and sublime religious movement recorded in the world's history was achieved by weak and ignorant men by preaching a falsehood in spite of all the learning, talent, money, prejudice, pride, popularity, civil and religious authorities on the face of the earth. And then he adds, the man who will say this is not a subject of argument. In other words, he's just not, not a subject of argument. Who would possibly contend for that is his point. And let me ask you, where are all the names of all the great men of that day who no doubt thought that Christianity would never last? But where's the name of Jesus of Nazareth? Every infidel who writes a letter in some form or another puts down the year of our Lord, 2015. In the midst of the unbelief, hardness of heart, and impenitence of our times, and it is a rough time, isn't it? Challenging time. And yet in the midst of all of that, the name of Jesus 
still finds its way into all the records, legal documents, and the entire literature of the civilized world. For the one who thinks the power of Christ is nothing, think about this day, the Lord's Day, the observance of the first day of the week. And when does faith in Christ ever give way when death approaches? On the other hand, many infidels have repudiated their unbelief when dying. In the last moments of one's life, there's a great difference between one who can say, the Lord is my shepherd, and the one who says, there is no God. Now, let's take a few moments to answer this question finally. How does the resurrection of Christ show this book to be of divine authority? Well, the resurrection proves Jesus to be the Christ. It proves him to be the son of the living God, and this is the foundation of the divine authority of the Bible. If Jesus is the Christ, then his claims are established, and all that he ever taught is true. How does this confirm the divine authority of the Bible? It does so in three ways. First, he fulfilled, he fulfilled numerous predictions of the Old Testament which could never have been fulfilled by an imposter, thus confirming the divine authority of the prophets, thus confirming his own divine authority. And then after establishing his own divine authority, he called and he qualified and he sent the apostles and he confirmed their divine mission, thus endorsing them and everything that they wrote. In Scripture, Jesus endorses all they said. Jesus endorses all they did. And this settles the divine authority of the New Testament. And since the claims of Jesus are established, all his acts that he did, all his words that he spoke are of divine authority. Therefore, he was with God before the world was. He was God, a member of the Godhead, the Word. It was by Him and for Him the world was made, that He was before all things, and by Him all things consist. And so in summary, He knew all things, all authority was vested in Him, and all that He endorsed is of divine authority. But what then did He endorse? He endorsed the divine authority of the Old Testament. He endorsed the work of the apostles and the other inspired writers of the New Testament. He endorsed the work they did, the wonders they achieved, and the religious revolution that resulted from their labors. We go back to the gospel preacher Ben Franklin for another quote. He wrote, quote, what a Grand spectacle to see him of whom Moses and all the prophets wrote, who was dead and is alive, who is divine, who has all authority in heaven 
and on earth, in whom all the fullness of the deity resides fully, standing between the two testaments, the old and the new, extending one hand back over Moses and the prophets, fully endorsing the Old Testament as of divine authority, and then turning to the apostles and extending the other hand over them, and by endorsing them and accompanying them with the most grand and stupendous displays of supernatural power, endorsing the New Testament given by them as of divine authority, end quote. The question is settled. The Bible is of divine authority because it is all endorsed by him who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And despite what men may try to tell us, to contradict all the clear-cut evidence that is there, the evidence does not go away. The tomb is still empty, not because the body was stolen, but because deity raised deity from that grave and in so doing proved forevermore his deity, his authority, and that transferred authority to this book, both Old and New Testament, as being endorsed and approved by the Christ, the Son of the living God. Have you expressed your faith in him as that authoritative Christ? the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Christ of the New, one and the same, simply different terms, ascribed to the same one whom God so lovingly sent into this world and the one who so willingly and lovingly gave himself that you and I might have the hope of eternal life. Has your faith in the one who cannot be denied as deity been expressed by your repentance from sin, your sweet confession of his name, and your burial with him in baptism for the remission of sins? If not, we plead with you to do that this very hour and then leave here living for him every day of your life until he comes again or until you die, whichever comes first, and doing so with the utmost confidence that despite what the enemies of the Bible would try to tell us, the evidence is truly on the side of the believer. If you need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do that in repentance, confession of sin that needs to be confessed in a public way as we stand to sing to encourage you when you come.